Did you shower today? This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Our guest is Professor Peter Ward. Good to talk with you, Peter. Oh, it's good to be here. Thanks so much, Bob. Peter Ward is a history professor emeritus, the University of British Columbia. He joins us from Vancouver. He's the author of several books on the social history of Canada and the history of population health. The book we're going to talk about is called The Clean Body. It's published by McGill, Queen's University Press. As soon as I saw the write-up for this, I said, do we really have to get this person on the Historian's Podcast? (laughs) Professor Ward explores the history of cleanliness and how our relationship to bathing has progressed over the centuries and continues to change. It's kind of part of the uh, the old saying, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. I think a lot of people, including me, have this sense, well, you know, years ago they didn't uh, keep themselves as clean as we do today. Uh, and I think that's true, looking at your book. Uh, what what uh, prompted you to do this topic? Well, it's a, it's a personal story, actually, because when I was uh, beginning my career as, a, as I was still a graduate student in history, I interviewed my grandfather for uh, a kind of a pioneers of the Western Canadian, uh, early early Western Canadian development. And uh, he told me about his life, uh, and one of the things he just remarked in passing was the fact that growing up in eastern Canada, he'd only had two baths a year. Uh, well, he, he wasn't uh, uh, anything other than as clean as the rest of us when I knew him, uh, but uh, he obviously had a different past than I had, and I became curious about that. I just wondered what that was all about, and I didn't spend much time thinking about it initially, but uh, over the years, I've thought a lot about it, and then uh, toward the end of my career, I began to think about um, uh, see, seeing what I could find out about the history of personal hygiene. So the, that's where the book came from. The Clean Body survi- surveys this uh, great uh, transformation that took place uh, specifically in Europe and North America. That's what you cover in your book. Right? That's right, yes. Why, why not the whole world? Is it just because it's bigger or <laughs> whatever? Uh, it's bigger and a lot more complicated because uh, there are a lot more environments, uh, a lot more cultural differences, a lot, a lot of very complicated cultural practices. Just just to choose one example, the, the very well-known case of, uh, of Japanese bathing habits, the Japanese onsen, uh, which is... Uh, a deeply, deeply embedded practice in Japanese history, um, and it's a very different set of practices than than we uh, we're familiar with. Really, I, I mean, it makes me ask though it's not in your book. I mean, what, what is it the Japanese do differently? Well, the Japanese have this wonderful hot bath called an onsen, and uh, it's. Uh, it's just, uh, I've been to Japan, I've, I've, I've used the onsen a few times. Uh, normally the Japanese public bath has a, a male and a female side, so you don't wear anything at all. Uh, but before you get into the bath, you have to wash yourself. Uh, and you clean yourself, uh, at least in the places I've been, uh, by sitting on a little tiny stool by a tap when you're getting on a little plastic basin, and you wash a bit of soap, and you wash yourself from top to bottom so that you're clean when you go into the bath. Okay. And then you go into the bath itself, it's really, really hot, and you soak as long as you can, and you get out, and you're done. It's huh. terrific. How about that? Now, you also... Uh, limit yourself, you know, in terms of how far back you go. You go back to the 1600s. Uh, That's right. 
I mean, the, the Romans bathed, right? Didn't they? They had baths. Oh, yes. The Romans had, and we see the remains of the baths when we go to Rome these days and lots of other places in the Roman Empire as well. But I just decided that uh, that was too big a stretch. Uh, one of the things about uh, books and the book reading public is that uh, they don't have an appetite for huge, long books anymore. That's not the 19th century. And so I was trying to write uh, a kind of a succinct and uh, focused study. Uh, and so I chose the last, basically the last 400 years, almost half of which was really the period of the, the big transition. So I wanted the, the earlier period to act as a contrast. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the earlier period. You uh, write, I mean, more than of just two men, but you do write about two men from the 1600s in their personal cleanliness, King uh, Louis XIV of France and uh, the British bureaucrat and, and who wrote a diary that's a fascinating work of literature, a man named Samuel Pepys. Now, Louis XIV of uh, France lived 1638 to 1715. He only had two known baths in his 77 years. That's right, yes. I expected he was washed off when he was a little baby, uh, uh, an infant, but um, but really, in in terms of what you and I think of as a bath, he only had two. And the first was when he was 27, and the other was a year or two later. uh, They were medicinal baths. They were not uh, baths to make him clean. Uh, their doctor, his doctors ordered them. He he had, uh, I think, uh, some form of, if not epilepsy, he, had, he was subject to fits, and they thought that a bath might help him out. Huh. So they popped him in the bath, and on the first occasion, uh, it didn't go very well. He got a bad headache, and so they took him out and dried him off and put him to bed for the rest of the day. Uh, and two years later, they had pretty much the same results, and so he gave up bathing. <laughs> but He washed himself. He washed his face and hands. He did. Uh, he did. Yes, I think hands once a day and face every every couple of days. But uh, that was about it, as far as we know. Mm. And his or idea, or maybe culture's idea at that time, even among the very uh, wealthy, was that cleanliness was accomplished by changing your clothes, changing your uh, the, the layer next to the skin, what we would call our underwear, I suppose. It wasn't underwear as we. I think of it today, but um, changing their their linen shirts in particular. Uh, if you look at a portrait, a 17th century portrait, including one of Louis, I was looking at one yesterday actually, and uh, they have uh, behind or sort of spilling out over the the outer clothing at the neck and around the the, the cuffs of the sleeves, especially. Are are often very elaborate, uh, highly decorated pieces of of white linen, and those were either a part of or were attached to an undershirt. Uh, and it was thought that uh, basically the the body's uh, impurities were going to be absorbed by the shirt, and the shirt had to be uh, changed regularly. Hmm. Louis changed his shirt many times a day because he had lots, uh, he, and he had lots of help in changing his clothes as well. But uh, it was a, the normal assumption at the, of the time among people who could afford uh, more than one pair of clothes mm. was um, that, uh, or one set of clothes, I should say, uh, was that uh, an undershirt or a, a shift, sometimes they were called, for both men and women, mm-hmm. uh, was the, the, the path to cleanliness. 
Now, King Louis the Fourteenth. I mean, that's the the top of the line in terms of um, being wealthy, I suppose, and pampered. But the other man that you use as an example across the uh, English Channel and uh, well, in England was the bureaucrat Samuel Pepys. He lived about the same years that uh, Louis the Fourteenth lived, sixteen thirty-three to seventeen o three. He was not a poor man; he'd done relatively well, but he he wasn't like the super rich. And you wrote, if I understood correctly, that he, to some extent, was converted to bathing by his wife. How did that work? Well, uh, there were, of course, at the time, there were medicinal baths. Uh, on public, uh, they were fee-paying public baths where people would they'd go for uh, some kind of medical treatment. And uh, Mrs. Pepys, uh, Elizabeth Pepys was her name, uh, went to one of these. Now, the backstory here is that Mr. and Mrs. Pepys did not have a particularly happy marriage. They were at daggers drawn, at least according to his diary, quite a lot of the time. Uh, but she came home from the from having the, her bath, and she felt terrific. And she said that uh, she wanted him to have a bath too, and she wasn't going to accept him in the marriage bed until he bathed. Okay. So he was uh, the victim of a kind of extortion, I suppose. And he he held out for I think two or three days, and then he went off and had a bath himself. And presumably, we hear no more about the marriage problems. Uh, but he had did have a bath. But the, the point here is that. When bathing did occur, uh, very often it was not for to become clean, as we understand it today, but all just to, because it was a therapeutic. It was a therapeutic goal. It, it, that it would make you better or cure illness. Cure an illness, easily. Yes. Um, now, th- this is a, maybe a century before uh, the colonists are here in America and up in up in Canada. Well, I mean, there were colonists in that century as well, but. Um, I was curious. Did was did George Washington take baths? Do you know? Or? Uh, I can't. I can't tell you. Uh, I honestly don't know. Uh, you need a good uh, Washington specialist, and I'm certainly not that. But one of the things I can tell you is that the um, the all of the American fathers in the Constitution that I whose portraits I've seen wear a simplified version of the same kind of clothing I've been describing. They have an outer jacket on, they have a, uh, a nice white shirt underneath uh, that, it's, as I say, spills out of the, at the, the collar, at the neck, and uh, usually at the cuffs as well. So I, I don't think there's any doubt about the fact that they were following pretty much the same practices that their counterparts in Europe uh, uh, followed as well. They were probably, you know, they, they may have got wet occasionally, but uh, their idea of being clean was to have clean underwear. Hmm. And also, in, in terms of the medicinal use of bathing, that you say was what was the case with uh, Pepys and the King of France, um, here in, well, in Europe too, but here in the North America, and I can think of one specific place, I'm kind of near uh, to Saratoga Springs, uh, which is a... Uh, a bath place. I mean, it, oh, before it had horse racing, it it had and still has the waters. People come and you take a bath up there, and you, you do get clean. But the idea is it makes you feel better or it cures um, problems uh, with you. And I I think if maybe if George Washington didn't bathe for cleanliness, he I mean, he conceivably could have gone to Saratoga for a treatment like that, couldn't he? A lot. 
I, I think that's, it's quite possible. It was the sort of thing that people with some means uh, could do and would do uh, on their doctor's advice. Uh, I think the, the baths are often taken uh, for people who had, like people who had skin problems, so they also had uh, people who had digestive problems uh, were often uh, people who went to baths. Uh, they, they, when taking the waters meant uh, having a bath, but it also meant drinking the waters as well. Uh, so uh, lots of our deep ancestors were fairly heavy drinkers, and uh, <laughs> I suppose taking the waters was a form of detox for, for them as well. And there was, there was, at the same time, there were the, 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 the mineral springs, and there were also there was an increasing amount of sea bathing that uh, developed in both in the eastern seaboard around New York and a part of the 18th century and uh, in much of Western Europe from the middle of the 18th century on. Uh, places like Brighton and Biarritz and the Netherlands, Schwenigen and uh, places like that where there were, there were spas and people went into the, the brisk ocean waters for curative purposes. But the idea that they were doing this be cleaner uh, people is kind of secondary if, if it existed at all. We're talking with Peter Ward, history professor emeritus at the University of British Columbia and the author of The Clean Body, which explores the history of cleanliness in Europe and North America. We'll be back with Professor Ward in just a moment. want to put in a word for our GoFundMe campaign, the 2020 campaign is underway. You can find uh, the link to our GoFundMe page on our homepage, our website, bobcudmore.com, and it's easy to donate online, and we certainly would appreciate it if you'd uh, uh, make a contribution for the Historian's Podcast. If you'd rather donate by mail, you can make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to Bob Cudmore at 125 Horseman Drive in Scotia, New York, 12302. Peter Ward is with us. We're talking about the development of personal cleanliness uh, in the Western world, in in Europe and North America. Uh, He is author of The Clean Body, uh, Modern History. You mentioned uh, just in passing in our conversation about the the King of France and George Washington and Samuel Pepys and your grandfather, uh, you mentioned this a great revolution. What was the, in a sense, turning point or what made it so that people started taking uh, personal cleanliness uh, much more seriously? Well, it's actually a, a long and uncomplicated story, and the, the, the turning points, if they exist, are pretty faint. But what I, I really have come to believe is that this is a long process of very gradual diffusion that began around the time of the American and French revolutions in the late 18th century, and, and certainly didn't end until into our lifetimes. It's not, in a sense, ended even today. But there were some really significant developments along the way uh, that uh, some of which we know uh, fairly clearly, and some of them that we're not so familiar with. Well, the one that comes—I'm uh, sorry—the one that comes yeah. to my mind is is plumbing. <laughs> the, uh, when did that develop? You know, uh, plumbing. 
plumbing. Oh, yes, plumbing is uh, is important, very important. Uh, the bathroom, in particular, uh, the bathroom is absolutely essential for bathing because it it creates a, a, a private space for people to be alone and, and unclothed. The bathroom developed very slowly. Uh, we talked about Louis. Louis the Fourteenth had one and put in this palace at Versailles. And uh, at some point, he took it out. He needed the space for another reason. But there was the, uh, Versailles did not have uh, a bathroom for most of its uh, time in life, Louis's lifetime, anyway. Uh, there were no bathrooms in, in Buckingham Palace or uh, uh, in the White House until well into the 19th century. So uh, the, the bathroom was uh, uh, an architectural development, a development of domestic architecture that began to spread toward the end of the 19th century. And even in the middle of the 20th century, uh, in North America, uh, both Canada and the United States, uh, only about half of homes in both countries had uh, a separate space um, for bathing uh, in, uh, by the, the beginnings of national data on this, uh, this phenomena in the early 1940s, I suppose. Uh, there was a great range of difference in the United States. Uh, in California, almost all homes had bathrooms by that time. Mm -hmm. In uh, the American South, uh, almost all homes didn't have a bathroom at that point in time. So the, 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 the acceptance or the development or spread of the bathroom was a very gradual and slow process. But mm -hmm. it was a fundamental if people were to be able to bathe regularly. Otherwise, of course, they still could bathe, and many, many did. But bathing it was a, a, a periodic event that took place uh, in a single tub in the kitchen or some other space where the family could gather together in some kind of privacy and the family would be dipped in the same water um, in, in succession, starting usually with the youngest and ending with uh, the, the adults. Mm. But as so, you say... Uh, one, one of the really important stepping stones then was... was this big change in domestic, how the organization of domestic spaces. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, it's really important for cleanliness, you know, to bring fresh water in and take foul water out of uh, a dwelling. I mean, that's... Yes, exactly, yeah. And once again, uh, that, that spread of, of indoor, indoor access to water was a, a very, very a gradual process. The... London was the first city in the Western world to have uh, a piped water, as we call it, up to uh, and inside the dwelling, and it had a long history going forward from the 16th century. But most places in Western Europe and North America didn't begin to develop. Uh, most big cities, in particular, didn't begin to d develop uh, uh, water supply and, and mm -hmm. sewage systems that connected individual houses. Uh, with the system, with the grid, until the latter part of the 19th century, and it took a long, long time before almost all homes had uh, these facilities. Well, well into the 20th century, up to the middle of the 20th century, at least. Did science have an effect here? I mean, with uh, when people discovered or scientists discovered that disease could be caused by germs or bacteria, things that you might be able to wash away. Did that, was that a, a, um, an impetus to uh, both the indoor plumbing and the development of more cleanliness? 
Uh, it certainly was, yes. The, the discovery uh, of bacteria by Louis Pasteur was one of the dramatic moments in, in medical history. And when was that? Uh, uh, in, the, in the early 1880s. Okay. But uh, again, the, 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 the thing I want to emphasize is the gradual diffusion of the process, because uh, even though it, it, it makes a, a, an exciting narrative, uh, there was, in fact, quite a lot of resistance to Pasteur's ideas for quite a while. And it wasn't until probably the beginning of the 20th century that his ideas were became, had become orthodoxy in, in the medical professions throughout Europe and North America. Mm. Uh, uh, the, other, the other factor that I do want to mention, uh, I think that's really crucial, is the development of the soap industry. Yes. Uh, because uh, soap was the other central in, uh, ingredient in bathing. And, of course, soap had existed in Roman times and it had been known throughout the Middle Ages. But uh, it wasn't used for uh, cleansing on an extensive basis, uh, at least bodily cleansing. It was used for domestic purposes more generally until into the 19th century. Mm, but... And... Uh, but No, I was going to say, but then these companies started marketing soap for its ability to clean and also for its ability or the idea that it would make you more uh, more beautiful, make you more more appealing. Exactly, exactly, yes. And uh, this had a lot to do with the reorganization of soap production, actually. Soap soap was a relatively simple thing to make. Uh, It was uh, made by the same people who made candles for lighting until uh, at least the Civil War period. Uh, and um, it was most, mostly made in little, sh- little shops and had, had a few employees, four, five, six employees. But uh, in the 1880s, uh, in both Britain and in uh, the United States, the industry became very rapidly reorganized on a corporate basis. And by the turn of the 20th century, the soap industry in Europe and North America was dominated by a rel- relatively small number of companies, uh, probably three or four, uh, most of whose names we rec- certainly recognize today because the companies are still with us. Uh, Procter & Gamble and Colgate Palmolive in the United States, and a company that was then known as Lever Brothers in Britain, but later became known as Unilever. Uh, and in order for these companies to grow and prosper, they had to advertise and advertise aggressively and heavily. Uh, so uh, the, the advertising function of, of the business of soap manu- making and selling became one of the principal educators of uh, the, 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 uh, the hygiene revolution, I guess we could call it. <laughs> And that that remained true up indeed to our own our own dear times. Uh, we still see lots of uh, <laughs> soaps and detergent ads uh, yeah. every everywhere we look, basically. That uh, so we, through all the generations of the media, the mass magazines and the mass journalism of the late 19th mm-hmm. and early 20th centuries, into the radio age in the 1930s and 40s, the soap operas, and yes. finally with the advent of television in the 1950s, the huge rapid spread of television as has saturated the Western world with soap advertisements that have had a huge impact on people's understanding yeah. of cleanliness. And there's more than just soap now. I mean, there's moisturizing and fragrances and... 
so forth. Ah, uh, yes, yes, that's that's right. Because uh, in a, in a sort of parallel way, the beauty industry, which had of course long been a luxury trade, uh, became uh, popularized uh, basically in the early part of the 20th century, and it drew much closer to the the soaps and detergents industries over time, as through corporate mergers and takeovers and so on. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the notion of clean and beauty uh, became became fused with one another. So uh, one of the examples uh, I think that expresses it uh, there there was uh, in our in our early days uh, <clears throat> a, a soap called Lux Toilet Soap, mm-hmm. uh, and Lux Toilet Soap was the, the best-selling bar soap in in much much of the Western world. Uh, in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, and it was rebranded uh, in the 1950s as Lux Beauty Soap. Uh-huh. So the, the two the two concepts were drawn together in this this absolutely f- core product for keeping clean. Now you tell an, another uh, anecdote about uh, the status of of cleanliness or clean smelling or non smelling today. Uh, that, that when you were working on this book. Apparently, you were over in in London, or, or maybe you were working on something else. I'm not sure you're actually working on this book. Oh, I book. was working on this, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you had to travel uh, daily from one place to another using uh, the, the subway, the tube in London, mm-hmm. and you had to get into an elevator to get to the tube that was really jam-packed with people. And tell us what you smelled in that uh, jam-packed well, situation. Well, I, I, I got on the, this elevator one morning on the rush, at the rush hour when everybody from, the, from Hampstead, which is a prosperous part of North London, uh, everybody who was going to work was on the, on, on the tube at the same time. And I got smushed in with everybody else. Uh, I took a deep breath, and I, all I could smell was coffee. <laughs> coffee, you know, it's as though the body had lost; it had become completely deodorized. <laughs> and that, that was, and then in my mind, that was kind of the end point of the process of the transition. It's just not; it was just a personal example, but it, uh, I think, it told uh, a larger story than just the fact that I was taking a little elevator ride in a crowded yeah. elevator. So. And and just uh, skipping around a little, I enjoyed one of the folklore sayings that you turned up. Wash hands, the hands often, the feet rarely, and the head never. Who used to say yeah. that? Well, that was a. Uh, it, it, was, it existed at two levels. That was uh, quite a common phrase used in, in a lot of different uh, Western European communities. But it was also there in the medical advice from the the medical school in Montpellier, which was one of the two major medical schools in, in late medieval Europe. Uh, so it, it, it existed uh, both as a, an, a, an expression of a kind of scientific knowledge and a, a form of popular wisdom, I suppose. And the public bath is a, not a very popular anymore. I mean, the, they still exist in, in Europe, North America? Uh, very occasionally, very occasionally. Uh, the last one I heard of was established by the current Pope uh, in the precincts of St. Peter's, to, and just created in the past five years, intended for the people of, of Rome. But uh, the, the older commercial uh, public baths have almost entirely disappeared. Huh. Well, it also occurs to me, I'm 74 years old, 
When I was young, we didn't take daily showers. How about you? Nope. Well, I'm 76, and we certainly didn't uh, either. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the, the daily shower uh, is, uh, I think, a development uh, of the 1960s and, and thereafter. But it's the next generation that uh, began to bathe more frequently. Uh, they began to change their clothes more frequently. They began to wash their clothes more carefully. They began to have a lot more clothes than we had when we were growing up as well. So the, the, the customs and practices have changed uh, fairly dramatically since the, the, the middle of the century. Uh, and again, I think many, many of the dynamics promoting these changes are the ones that we've just been talking about. Uh, particularly the, the, the very, very aggressive stance of the, the, the soap and detergent and, and beauty. Uh, purveyors. Mm -hmm. Peter Ward is a professor emeritus of history at the University of British Columbia, and his latest book is The Clean Body. Professor Ward exploring the history of cleanliness, how our relationship to bathing has progressed over the centuries and continues to change. This has been The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. <laughs>